Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein. I am your host, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, your count of condescension and Georgianologist, Michael Ian Black. I have by my side a warm cup of tea. It is morning in Connecticut. My dumb dog squash is in another room he does not care to accompany me on these journeys into the heart of darkness and i can't say i blame him uh the jill schwartz memorial library now that it is autumn time has a bit of a chill to it there is a nip in the air we made some interior changes here the rug has been swapped out so to, to hopefully provide a little bit more warmth during the cold months. And the months are indeed cold here and across the country as uh, our attention returns to the pandemic, which is raging unabated. Now, two pieces of good news on that front as I record this, two vaccines both of which seem to have an efficacy rate of over 90%. And so it seems as though if they can get the coordination of delivery in place and all goes according to plan, it seems like we might be getting vaccinated in the next several months. However, in the meantime, it's just horrible out there. Why am I bringing this up? Well, these vaccines, of course, are triumphs of modern science and are examples of what people can do when they understand, for example, chemistry, among other things. And Victor Frankenstein, back there in Ingolstadt in 17-whatever, is complaining to himself that 
this new chemistry, these, this new natural philosophy, which insists that we make incremental progress towards our aims instead of solving all problems simultaneously, is uh, irrede- irredeemably dull. He does not have the patience for the kind of step-by-step-by-step careful methodology that has led us to developing multiple vaccines 250, 300 years later for a novel coronavirus. And you can understand his frustration because he's probably going, wait a minute, why do I got to wait 300 years till science can devote, can, can devise a vaccine for a novel coronavirus? I'm stuck here at Ingolstadt. Remember, Victor Frankenstein is young John Travolta in my, in my telling. Um, and I understand that, you know, but we can't get from point A to point X and I'm, not, I'm purposely not going Z because there's more to discover, obviously, in chemistry. You can't get there if we don't go through all the letters one by one. But he wants to skip over the alphabet and go right to Z. He wants to cure disease. He wants to solve aging. He wants to harness the power of lightning, whatever he wants to do. It's annoying. It's pretentious. Uh, and believe me, I know annoying and pretentious when I hear it. He is dreaming the dreams of young men, heroic dreams. And you can forgive him for his youth. We understand youth here. Unobscure, after all. I have two youths living among me. Neither of them seem to possess these kinds of grandiose dreams. One of them wants to basically play video games all day. And the other one enjoys um, sitting at the dinner table and eating sullenly. So I understand the youths. It is rumored I used to be one. And when I was one, I remember thinking to myself, I will never forget what this feels like so that when I have children, I will understand them. Well, I forgot what it feels like. All I know is it felt bad. Um, So we can imagine that young Victor Frankenstein feels bad. Uh, He has embarked on his fate. Like he keeps telling us, like my destiny is set. I'm ready to go. Everything is laid before me. He's done that four or five times, but this time at the end of chapter three, he seems to mean it. He met uh, Master Waldman, a professor there, and uh, the last line of chapter three is, thus ended a day memorable to me. It decided my future destiny. Okay, fine. Let's begin chapter four. From this day, natural philosophy, and particularly chemistry, in the most comprehensive sense of the term, became nearly my sole occupation. I read with ardor those works, so full of genius and discrimination, which modern inquirers have written on these subjects. I attended the lectures and cultivated the acquaintance of the men of science of the university. And I found even in M. Krempe, Mysticata, a great deal of sound sense and real information combined, it is true, with a repulsive physiognomy and manners. He's such a dick. He's such a dick. Like, we get it. Like, 
Krempe is not the best looking dude in the world, but you can go to his lectures and he's not asking you to fuck him. You know what I mean? He just wants to tell you about chemistry. You can, I mean, I don't know how much of a warthog this guy is all in all, but I don't care. Like why throw in that dig at Mr. Kata in M, uh, repulsive physiognomy and manners, but not on that account, the less valuable. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Jeez. In M. Waldman, I found a true friend. His gentleness was never tinged by dogmatism, and his instructions were given with an air of frankness and good nature that banished every idea of pedantry. In a thousand ways, he smoothed for me the path of knowledge and made the most abstruse enquiries clear and facile to my apprehension. My application was at first fluctuating and uncertain. It gained strength as I proceeded and soon became so ardent and eager that the stars often disappeared in the light of morning whilst I was yet engaged in my laboratory." As I applied so closely, it may be easily conceived that my progress was rapid. My ardor was indeed the astonishment of the students and my proficiency that of the masters. Geez, pat yourself on the back a little bit more, Frankenstein. Professor Kremke often asked me with a sly smile how Cornelius Agrippa went on, whilst M. Waldman expressed the most heartfelt exultation in my progress. Two years passed in this manner, during which I paid no visit to Geneva, but was engaged, heart and soul, in the pursuit of some discoveries which I hoped to make. None but those who have experienced them can conceive of the enticements of science. In other studies, you go as far as others have gone before you, and there is nothing more to know. But in a scientific pursuit, there is continual food for discovery and wonder. A mind of moderate capacity, which closely pursued one study, must infallibly arrive at great proficiency in that study. And I, who continually sought the attainment of one object of pursuit and was solely wrapped up in this, improved so rapidly that at the end of two years, I made some discoveries in the improvement of some chemical instruments which procured me great esteem and admiration at the university. When I had arrived at this point and had become as well acquainted with the theory and practice of natural philosophy as depended on the lessons of any of the professors at Ingolstadt, my residence there being no longer conducive to my improvements, I thought of returning to my friends in my native town when an incident happened that protracted my stay. I'm going to have a sip of tea here. Um, so he's two years, you know, studying at the university, and then he's mastered chemistry in two years. He's, he, he knows everything there is to possibly know. He can learn no more. He is the envy and admiration of all at the university. We're all so very proud of... Victor Frankenstein. Hmm. Ah, a little morning tea. Um, one of the things I, I keep thinking about, I don't keep thinking about it, I've thought of it and thought about it again. So a couple of times I've thought about the differences 
in the literary style here of Mary Shelley contrasted with the literary style of Thomas Hardy. And I am no expert in literature or anything else, but my understanding is that Frankenstein is written more in the Romantic period, a period of great uh, expression and emotion, and uh, Hardy was written in the Naturalistic period, which is really about describing modern life in as natural a way as possible, which is to say, just it's descriptive, but it's not heightening um, reality, right? It's painting in truer colors. But with Shelley... And Frankenstein, they're, you know, it's all heightened. She's painting in, in slightly more garish colors. And what's my point? Uh, just that the way they conceive of nature in the natural world seems to be different. And again, I'm not an expert on this stuff, but it seems like when Mary Shelley is writing, and in this book in particular, she is trying to work on the thesis that man can influence nature, but that in turn, you pay a price for it, that, that we can command the heavens, that we have some great power over them. At least that's the, that's the thesis of Frankenstein, and it seems like she's taking that as, as far as, as, as it can go, whereas Hardy's thesis seems to be no matter what we do, nature will destroy us. They both come to the same conclusion. They both come to the conclusion that nature will destroy you, but I think they're getting there in different ways. Again, I'm just, what am I doing? I'm spouting. I'm bloviating. But that's what I do here. We arrive at our own terminus, the terminus of our souls, by different routes. But in a way, maybe not. I mean, they're both about people who... Um, as they say in the political realm, get over their skis a little bit and try to do too much with too little because everything is too little in the face of nature. But the route that they go, Frankenstein is trying to tame nature, his own and the vast nature, through the study of science, right? Which is the way that you and I would do it. You and I would look to the sciences and we would say, this is the way we're going to overcome our limitations. We're going to take supplements and we're going to master physics. We're going to conduct experiments. We're going to defeat aging. We're going to defeat disease. But Jude Fowley was trying to go at it through the divine, through the spirit. He was saying, I'm going to master nature, my own, and understand the larger by going through the mind of God different ways of approaching the problem, both ultimately disasters, which, you know, is funny. One of the phenomena which had peculiarly, I have always had trouble with the word peculiarly, which had peculiarly attracted my attention was the structure of the human frame and indeed any animal endued with life. Whence, I often asked myself, did the principle of life proceed? Right. Great question. Where does life come from? How did that happen? Great question. You know, Vic, you're probably not the first one to ask it. Don't act like you are. It was a bold question and one which has ever been considered as a mystery. Yeah. Yet with how many things are we upon the brink of becoming acquainted if cowardice or carelessness did not restrain our inquiries? I revolved these circumstances in my mind and determined thenceforth to apply myself more particularly 
to those branches of natural philosophy which relate to physiology. Unless I had been animated by an almost supernatural enthusiasm, okay, so that's, uh, that relates, I would say, directly to what we were just talking about, the natural and supernatural. I revolved these circumstances in my mind and determined thenceforth to apply myself more particularly to those branches of natural philosophy which relate to physiology, unless I had been animated by an almost supernatural enthusiasm. My application to this study would have been irksome and almost intolerable. To examine the causes of life, we must first have recourse to death. I became acquainted with the science of anatomy, but this was not sufficient. I must also observe the natural decay and corruption of the human body. In my education, my father had taken the greatest precautions that my mind should be impressed with no supernatural horrors. I do not ever remember to have trembled at a tale of superstition or to have feared the apparition of a spirit. Darkness had no effect upon my fancy, and a churchyard was to me merely the receptacle of bodies deprived of life, which, from being the seat of beauty and strength, had become food for the worm. It's interesting, again, comparing Shelley and Hardy, let me sip again. (coughs) Wrong pipe. (coughs) My own anatomy is betraying me. It's interesting, again, just to think about Frankenstein the atheist. Frankenstein who uh, has no truck in religion. Does, I mean, I'm sure you just didn't use that word correctly. But does, seems to not believe in religion or superstition or the supernatural or anything of the sort. Does not look for the divine. Does not look for signs. Has no interest in Ouija boards or anything like it. Um, And yet, he is still beguiled by the idea of fate, uh, of a plan written for him. By whom, I ask you, dear Victor Frankenstein, by whom is this plan written? By oneself, because the idea of destiny and fate seems to presuppose the idea of a higher consciousness, right? Or else, you're just kind of skittering along the road looking for stuff. And you find stuff piece by piece. But the route hasn't been laid out for you. And yet Victor Frankenstein seems to think it has. So there's a little bit of uh, a contradiction there. I understand that we all kind of segregate our hypocritical thoughts. Atheists in a foxhole and all of that. There are no atheists in a foxhole. Well, I understand. But if you are indeed somebody who has no supernatural enthusiasm, then, you know, don't talk about fate, dude. Whereas I feel like with Hardy, it was the, the, the eternal question in the book, the question between Jude Fowley and Sue Bridehead, and a question which Thomas Hardy seemed to be wrestling with as well, was what is the nature of God and what is the nature of fate itself? He didn't seem to presuppose that there was a fate, but that maybe we make our own. And the Sue Bridehead model seemed to be Jude, that is folly. And of course, his last name is Folly. Jude, you are playing with fire. Here, you're going to get yourself burned. And he did in this book. 
subtitled The Modern Prometheus, Victor Frankenstein, also playing with fire, will also get burned. The point is, there's fire, guys. Don't play with it. Don't play with fire. You're going to get yourself burned. Now I'm going to stretch and sip my tea and take a little break. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Back in Obscure, let's read on. Now I was led to examine the cause and progress of this decay, and forced to spend days and nights in vaults and charnel houses. My attention was fixed upon every object the most insupportable to the delicacy of the human feelings. I saw how the fine form of man was degraded and wasted. I beheld the corruption of death succeed to the blooming cheek of life. I saw how the worm inherited the wonders of the eye and brain. I paused, examining and analyzing all the minutiae of causation, as exemplified in the change from life to death and death to life, until from the midst of this darkness a sudden light broke in upon me. A light so brilliant and wondrous, yet so simple. See, this is what I'm talking about. This is the kind of romantic language that that I'm talking about. A sudden light broke in upon me, a light so brilliant and wondrous, yet so simple, that while I became dizzy with the immensity of the prospect which it illustrated, I was surprised that among so many men of genius who had directed their inquiries towards the same science, that I alone should be reserved to discover so astonishing a secret. Remember, I am not recording the vision of a madman. The sun does not more certainly shine in the heavens than that which I now affirm is true. 
Some miracle might have produced it, yet the stages of the discovery were distinct and probable. After days and nights of incredible labor and fatigue, I succeeded in discovering the cause of generation and life. Nay, more, I became myself capable of bestowing animation upon lifeless matter. And there we go. Now we have met our familiar Dr. Frankenstein, have we not? Now we have met the man who has animated our own uh, movies and horrors for all these hundreds of years since this book was first published. The guy who can make the dead live. That is our plot. And now we're there. 50 pages in, or what have you. I mean, it's taken us a while to get there. We're probably a third of the way, well, maybe a quarter of the way through the book. But Act 1 has concluded just now. I became myself capable of bestowing animation upon lifeless matter. He's going to animate you guys. He's going to invent The Simpsons. And the world will be better for it. Um, I mean, it feels like a little bit of a relief, right? Like, okay, we're now on familiar territory for what feels like the first time. We now are back with Frankenstein, the Frankenstein that we know. And uh, I was going to say love, but up to this point in my life, I have been indifferent to Frankenstein in all of its forms. I've never seen a Frankenstein movie other than Young Frankenstein by Mel Brooks. I think I said that before, which I loved. The astonishment which I had at first experienced on this discovery soon gave place to delight and rapture. After so much time spent in painful labor, to arrive at once at the summit of my desires was the most gratifying consummation of my toils. But this discovery was so great and overwhelming that all the steps by which I had been progressively led to it were obliterated, and I beheld only the result. What had been the study and desire of the wisest men since the creation of the world was now within my grasp, not that like a magic scene it all opened upon me at once. The information I had obtained was of a nature rather to direct my endeavors so soon as I should point them towards the object of my search than to exhibit that object already accomplished. I was like the Arabian who had been buried with the dead. Footnotes! Footnotes. Now we have our first footnotes. Hooray! Hooray! I was like the Arabian who had been buried with the dead from the thousand and one nights. Sinbad the sailor's fourth voyage. Oh, I don't care. That's what I would have guessed it was from. I was like the Arabian who had been buried with the dead and found a passage to life, aided only by one glimmering and seemingly ineffectual light. That I assume the seemingly ineffectual light was uh, his background with Agrippa and such. I see by your eagerness and the wonder and hope which your eyes express, my friend. So now he's referring, so it's Walton uh, quoting Frankenstein, referring back to Walton. And this is our first reacquaintance with Walt Walton since the basically the introduction of the book concluded. 
which is good. I mean, I, I worried about Walton. I'm glad he's back in the picture. I, uh, I hope he is enjoying the tale, but apparently he is. I see by your eagerness and the wonder and hope which your eyes express, my friend, that you expect to be informed of the secret with which I am acquainted. Yeah, I just saved your life, dude. Tell me how to animate life. Tell me how to bring back the dead. Tell me, Victor. I can't do it. I can't do it, Walton. That cannot be. Listen patiently until the end of my story, and you will easily perceive why I am reserved upon that subject. I will not lead you on, unguarded and ardent as I then was, to your destruction and infallible misery. Learn from me, if not by my precepts, at least by my example. How dangerous is the acquirement of knowledge, and how much happier that man is who believes his native town to be the world than he who aspires to become greater than his nature will allow. This could have been written by Thomas Hardy, I tell you now. If only Jude Folly had stayed in his little town, Mary, Church Mary, whatever it was called, right? If only we just stayed within our own natures. There's also something I think kind of funny about the idea that Mary Shelley, herself the writer, is like, okay, so I wrote, I led myself down this uh, primrose path where my character has discovered how to create life. And I have this narrator whose obvious question is going to be, well, how do you do it, Vic? And me, Mary Shelley, I have no idea. So... Uh, I'll just answer by saying, I can't tell you. I can't tell you, Mr. Carter. It's too much. You don't want to know. But of course, we do want to know. You know, there's also, you know, obviously, I mean, I'm, I'm stating the obvious here, but we were just talking about the supernatural, of course. And where are we in this story, if not the Garden of Eden? Uh, learn from me, if not by my precepts, at least by my example, how dangerous is the acquirement of knowledge and how much happier that man is who believes his native town to be the world. I mean, that is the story of the Garden of Eden right there in a nutshell. Look, you have this garden. It's perfect. Hang out, you know, be all moody, have a great time. Um, just leave that one tree alone. That tree's a bad tree. I don't know why I put that tree there. Just leave it alone, okay? Uh, it's the tree of knowledge. You don't want to know. It's a pain in the ass. Just leave it alone. And Eve, and again, I think because my, my wife Martha told me there's an Eve in this story who I believe to be the creature, Eve, of course, is like, can't leave well enough alone. She's like, I think I'm going to, you know what? I think I'm going to take a little knowledge. She takes a little knowledge and, you know, then she has to leave her native town, which was the best in the world. And she and her boo are condemned, you know. They know a little bit more, but at what cost? What does knowledge cost us? It costs us everything. But what is its reward? Nobody ever answers that question in books. Yeah, we pay the price for knowledge, but what is its reward? Everybody seems to think it's not worth it. Maybe it is. We got a vaccine coming. You know what I mean? We got two vaccines coming. What was the cost of that knowledge? I mean, it's something to think about, isn't it? Because, the, because, because a lot of books and myths have told us not to fly too close to the sun. But why? 
We understand that some people are going to get lost along the way, but some people are going to fly right on past and get into orbit. They're going to set up a space station. Icarus could set up a goddamn space station out there. And we'd be like, hey, Icarus, good job. And then somebody on that space station is like, I'm going to get even closer to the sun, and they're going to plunge into the fiery sun and die a horrific death. But somebody else is going to get a little closer and closer and closer. There's no end to it. There is no end to the acquisition of knowledge. But we all understand that there's a price that has to be paid. But is it ever worth it? My answer, yeah, probably. Why wouldn't it be worth it? It's within us. It is our nature to seek knowledge. All of us. Jude Folly, Victor Frankenstein, Sue Bridehead, me. Not my kids. They don't give a shit about anything. But everybody else. Everybody else. When I found so astonishing a power placed within my hands, I hesitated a long time concerning the manner in which I should employ it. Although I possessed the capacity of bestowing animation, yet to prepare a frame for the reception of it, with all its intricacies of fibers, muscles, and veins, still remained a work of inconceivable difficulty and labor. I doubted at first whether I should attempt the creation of a being like myself or one of similar organization. But my imagination was too much exalted by my first success to permit me to doubt of my ability to give life to an animal as complex and wonderful as man. The materials at present within my command hardly appeared adequate to so arduous an undertaking, but I doubted not that I should ultimately succeed. I prepared myself for a multitude of reverses. My operations might be incessantly baffled, and at last my work be imperfect. Yet when I considered the improvement which every day takes place in science and mechanics, I was encouraged to hope my present attempts would at least lay the foundations of future success. Nor could I consider the magnitude and complexity of my plan as any argument of its impracticability. It was with these feelings that I began the creation of a human being. It seems like that should end, or, that should end either the, 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 the chapter or at least the paragraph, but it keeps going. As the minuteness of the parts formed a great hindrance to my speed, I resolved, contrary to my first intention, to make the being of a gigantic stature, that is to say about eight feet in height and proportionally large. After having formed this determination and having spent some months in successfully collecting and arranging my materials, I began. Okay, I'm going to stop there because this episode is getting long. But this, I mean, so that answers one of my questions. Remember, several episodes ago, I said, well, how, why, is, why is this creature so big? Because you're, you're, you're making a human out of parts that we have, you know, off the shelf, or out of the crypt parts. How is it so big? Or why is it so big? And he's saying it's because 
the 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 stuff that I had to deal with these little veins, these arteries, all this stuff was were so small that I if I just made it a little bit bigger, it'd be easier to work with, right? That's what he said. As the minuteness of the parts formed a great hindrance to my speed, uh, I resolved, contrary to my first intention, to make the being of a gigantic stature. But that doesn't quite make sense because you still have to assemble these parts from somewhere, and it's very difficult to find parts of people who are eight feet tall because there just aren't that many people who are eight feet tall. I may, I may be one of the few, and you can't have my parts. This is something that I, I don't discuss that often because I don't like to call attention to it, but I feel like it's worth saying here. I am eight feet tall. Um, those of you who have seen me on screen or in person and you say, well, no, my, Michael, you are considerably shorter than that. I would say, uh, no, all of that, that, that compression that you see, that's all CGI. So I have to walk around with CGI because otherwise it just makes my life too difficult. Right. So I am, in fact, eight feet tall. I could, in fact, supply the parts for Frankenstein if if I were a corpse back then. But because I am a living eight foot tall man here and now, I can't, um, nor would I, because I, I cherish my own life too much, even if I'm promised to be reanimated in something else. So all of that to say, it's very hard to find parts from an eight foot tall person. I don't know where he thinks he's assembling these from. Like, where does Mary envision that he's just going around getting limbs uh, for an eight-foot-tall person, the skull of an eight-foot-tall person, the scapula and tendons and tibia of an eight-foot-tall person? It just it, it just seems needlessly complicated and not particularly plausible. But, you know, again, it's a horror story. It's a science fiction story. Let us stipulate that when she puts in anachronisms from poems and other literary allusions, she is existing in a parallel universe in which eight-foot-tall people are readily available, and she can just go down to the local morgue and request them by the pound. So, there we are. Uh, I feel like, finally, like, finally, we're on our way. I like there's a there's a there's the pace has picked up for me because now we understand the intention of this story. The backstory of Frankenstein and Walton has all led us to this point, the point of familiar terrain, the point where Frankenstein gets his act together and builds us a fucking monster, which is all we've wanted from the very beginning. Frankenstein, build me a monster. Hey, don't rush me, Mr. Kata. I gotta get my background in first. I do like that. Shelley has painted this in terms that we would recognize. You know what I mean? She's saying, look, I came upon this secret as the result of my studies. It led me from point A to point B to point C, right? We were talking about the alphabet earlier, and now I have arrived at this point through my labor and study and diligence. And then I had, you know, this is a snap. I had an insight. The insight was, aha, after knowing all of that, now I know how to make life, right? But only I could have done it because only I have gone upon this course of study. And I also like that she's saying, and even though I know the secret, I still may not be successful because there are all these complexities ahead of me. Like that sounds like modern scientific inquiry to me. That sounds like the kind of thing that, you know, uh, Elon Musk might say like, oh yeah, I figured out how to build a home uh, nuclear generator for everybody to have endless power like that. Like th I figured that out, but it's going to, you know, I might not succeed. It, you know, it's going to take a lot of complicated wires and stuff. 
you know, complicated wires are generally the problem when inventing new forms of energy. So yeah, I like where we are. You know, I feel like the book has took a turn. I was bored. I felt like we were just stumbling along. And now I feel energized. I feel like I myself have been animated. So I'm excited. I feel vaccinated against boredom. And I'm ready to continue. So let's see what happens on another scientifically illuminating episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu.